Hello, listeners. This is David Blakesley, and I am here to welcome you to episode 133 of the Criterion Reflections podcast. Uh, I would have had a band and a proper welcoming ceremony together, but I just couldn't get it going quite in time. So sorry you know, that the trumpet and horn section isn't quite in place, but it's just me and my my friend and my guest, Richard Doyle, here to talk about Bob Rafelson's The King of Marvin Gardens, 1972 film starring Jack Nicholson, Bruce Dern, Ellen Burstyn, and a pretty solid supporting cast, some interesting characters there. Uh, as we kind of come to the end of a new Hollywood phase as captured in Criterion Collections, epic box set, the America Lost and Found, the BBS story, that they released back around 2010 or so. Uh, at the time, it was one of the most impressive and spectacular uh, you know, individual pieces of merchandise that Criterion had put out in its uh, illustrious uh, history there. And it's still one of my favorite box sets uh, that uh, I, I really feel is kind of essential work if you're a fan of 1970s uh, American film, for sure. So, Richard, welcome back. It's been, it's been good to uh, reconnect and get you back on the program. How's it going today? Yeah, it's going good. Good to be back. Yes, absolutely. It's been a few months, and I know my pace has been a little bit slow, but I'm hoping we can kind of get some steam going again, and uh, I'm very excited to talk about this film that uh, it really is kind of a, a unique showcase for, I would say, you know, the three actors I've named uh, who went on to pretty impressive things. Uh, this might be seen as sort of a sort of a low-key entry into their overall careers and, and the different heights that they've reached and, and all of that. But uh, yeah, this is, this is a film that I feel is maybe a little bit slept on, uh, at least it's not as prominent in the discourse as some of the other films in that box set, such as Five Easy Pieces, Easy Rider, The Last Picture Show. I guess those are kind of the big three of that set. Uh, but this is the one that kind of brings that collection to a close. Uh, it's the sixth feature film in that series or in that in that collection. And Richard, I just want to kind of hear a few of your thoughts about the uh, about the King of Marvin Gardens. Tell me your impressions, maybe you know how you've seen the film, uh, kind of your your history with it, etc. Uh, sure, I I actually go back quite a ways with this film. I saw it in the late '80s. I used to um, comb late night TV for movies that were supposed to be good and record them on v, v, VHS. <laughs> okay, so I, I picked this one up at that time, and. Um, the the opening with um, Jack Nicholson doing the radio show is yeah. the main thing that really stuck with me about it. So um, I watched it again in 2010 when I got this set and liked it and uh, liked it enough to think I, I, I should talk about it. And watching it this time, I like it even more. I, um, I agree. It's kind of slept on. It's um, I think it's a little difficult to like compared to say five easy pieces. And that's a bit why it, it, it gets, doesn't get as much talked about, but I think it's a very similar film in many ways. Mm -hmm. It's similar in what ways? I mean, five easy pieces certainly is, is well known for some of its, what you might call set pieces, you know, the diner scene, uh, you know, just the musical bits and, and just Jack Nicholson's, you know, really, I mean, he had already been on the upward trajectory to becoming a star, but it seemed like five easy pieces was kind of, a pretty big piece of his launching pad there, but uh, yeah, he kind of takes on a different uh, aspect of the character here. But uh, you know, tell me some of those similarities. How do you see this kind of growing out of uh, Five Easy Pieces, which was also directed by the same guy, Bob Raffleson? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think both are fairly sort of downbeat character studies at heart, mm -hmm. right? With with very similar sort of spending time, sort of looking at a character and and getting to know them without really resolving any sort of central conflict for them. I think five easy pieces, as you say, has big set pieces and has Jack playing a very flamboyant character. So it's a bit easier to like on, on those grounds, as well as I think his character at the time that the film was made was a lot more appealing to audiences. Yeah. As opposed to like his character in this one. But if you sort of set aside the more flamboyant moments they're they're at heart very similar films you know it, it's sort of a piece of what Wolfson was doing at the time 
yeah which is kind of the kind of the the darker twisted side of family dynamics and this is really about just two brothers with five easy pieces you've got the whole sort of family tree in there and and you know relationships between parents and their children and all of that this is a little bit more focused i guess there's a grandfather that's that's in here i'm not really clear as to what happened to the actual parents <laughs> they've kind of exited the scene but you've basically got uh, a story of two brothers who are I guess you kind of have to say it's a bit of a dysfunctional relationship. And yet at the same time, they, they tend to ground and balance each other out in some ways. It it doesn't end well, I guess we could give a little bit of a hint there, but uh, maybe, maybe we'll start by having you just give us a little synopsis and, and, you know, you know, do what you can and I'll sort of fill in some pieces uh, just to kind of lay the groundwork because I, I have a hunch there might be some people who listen to this podcast who haven't gotten around to seeing this one yet. So let's just go ahead and give a little introduction and maybe uh, whet some appetites to check this one out. Sure. So Nicholson plays a, a man with a radio show. It's a, you're tempted to say DJ, but it's not quite right. He sort of tells stories on the air. Uh, in the in middle of the night. He's a late night yeah. radio guy, right? Yeah. Yeah, he lives in Philadelphia with, as you mentioned, his grandfather. And uh, he gets a call from uh, Bruce Stern, who plays his brother, his older brother, who I gather he hasn't seen in a couple of years. And he wants him to come down to uh, Atlantic City immediately to uh, take advantage of a big opportunity. So Nicholson goes down there, is met by Ellen Burstyn, who is playing um, Dern's girlfriend, probably the best way of putting it. Sure. And um, unfortunately, Dern isn't there to meet him because Dern's in jail. <laughs> yeah, which is the Ellen Burstyn tribute that I opened the episode with there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so he goes to see Dern in jail, and Dern sends him to go see another man to get him out of jail. Lewis, yes. Lewis, yeah. I, I'll like Scatman Crothers, right? Yeah, it's Scatman Crothers. You don't really know this at this point because Crothers kind of pretends not to be Lewis. <laughs> <laughs> right. But this is sort of resolved and he ends up meeting Dern, who's staying in a suite in a fancy hotel. And he tells him he's got a plot to buy an island off the coast of Hawaii and build a resort hotel there and sell, uh, sell you know, vacation plots to people to live on this island. And apparently all this is set and he's going to let Nicholson buy in on it. The two of them are going to move to Hawaii with Ellen Burstyn and her stepdaughter, who's also hanging around there. And this is a young woman. This is an adult young woman, like probably in her early 20s. So it's not like a stepdaughter or a kid, uh, even though Ellen Burstyn herself isn't that old. And, you know, again, we don't really have a lot of backstory as to how her and this young stepdaughter got connected, but you just sort of figure there's kind of a tawdry past associated with each of these characters, you know, that have gotten to the present moment that uh, we're following them around in, in this little uh, misadventure here. It's, it's around here that I'd say describing the plot becomes a little difficult because yeah, yeah. a lot of it is the four of them hanging around with various things sort of coming up over and over. One is Dern's uh, continued plans to try to close this deal, mostly with these Japanese businessmen that they meet with. And it starts to become apparent that this deal isn't really close to happening. And uh, it, it sort of comes out that Dern's been working for Scatman Crothers, who's a criminal, like a gangster. Mm-hmm. And Dern's kind of made up this opportunity out of nowhere, and Crothers has no intention of letting him follow through on it. Exactly. Yeah, he's been kind of. I mean, the Bruce Dern character imagines himself to be sort of the right hand man of this underworld kingpin, who's going to use. He's going to leverage this uh, advantageous position he's in to, to to hit the big time and become a big operator himself. You know, he's going to run this island resort, you know, got a casino, got a little bit of a sort of a pseudo Las Vegas action going there. It's, it's very grandiose and, and, and very hyperbolic, you know, but again, he's a guy who sort of believes his own bullshit and thinks that by just pressing ahead with sheer confidence and bravado, 
he can bring other people along, you know? Uh, yeah, this movie was marketed in its time as sort of a depiction of the death of the American dream. And I guess that the idea, if the American dream de- depends on hustle and chutzpah and just kind of shamelessly going for broke and trying to make other people feel stupid for not getting in on the ground floor of this once in a lifetime opportunity that you're throwing in front of them. Yeah. That, that, that American dream was pretty much in the process of dying right here. And the setting of, of course is also very important. And I remember this movie, uh, the marketing of it, I suppose you can say as a kid, uh, the King of Marvin gardens, 1972, I'm about 11 years old at the time. And of course this is the time of life where, a lot, of, a lot of people my age are discovering and playing the game Monopoly. <laughs> and and even even the, the, the yellow bar at the top of the Monopoly card that uh, signals uh, Marvin Gardens and was it Atlantic and uh, Ventnor Avenue, something like that. Those are the three you know, right up the, to the next to the go to jail uh, card. And of course, the green tiles are right around the corner there. So the King of Marvin Gardens, that title has stuck with me all along as a kind of a, a footnote or, you know, something it has something to do with Monopoly. And of course, the Monopoly game is based on the uh, real life city of Atlantic City. And, uh, and that's how it was designed. Everybody, everybody knows that. But the, you know, the, the, um, the rundown sort of dilapidation or the in process decline of this once great and glorious uh, resort town uh, with its great hotels and you know, all, all just all the fun life, you know, the boardwalk and all of that is a pretty prominent part of the atmospherics of this film. Uh, and the fact that uh, at the time, Atlantic City was definitely on the downward spiral. And many of the buildings that we see, you know, depicted on screen have apparently been, were, were soon after demolished. And uh, they made way for a new Atlantic City to arise kind of out of the rubble there with legalized casino gambling and kind of a more modern approach to tourism and all of that. So you see all these different things kind of going on, you know, the, 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 the backdrop of the film kind of coinciding with the kind of somewhat squalid uh, characters and their kind of desperate flailing around, you know, the, uh, David is the, the, the Jack Nicholson character. He is this late night radio uh, philosopher king, I, I guess, was, was which was the, one of the working titles of this film. Uh, he's a guy who has decided that he's going to sort of put his imagination to work by spieling out these monologues uh, on kind of that old form of, of late night radio where you basically just had a dude sitting at the microphone kind of riffing on whatever was on his mind. I mean, Larry King, who was used to be a pretty big, famous um, you know, TV guy, I mean, that's how he got his his start, you know, and people talking about UFOs and Bigfoot and conspiracy theories and all the kind of fringy, wacky stuff that goes through your mind in those wee hours of the night. That's, that's the Jack Nicholson character. Uh, and he considers himself, again, a bit of an intellectual uh, working in this new fe- medium of, of, of late night radio. And of course, I couldn't help but think, boy, he was kind of like the podcaster <laughs> of his time. You know, but yeah, so, so interesting character dynamics. Uh, yeah. Tell me just a little bit more. What would you take away from, from these two brothers as they're kind of working through their issues? Yeah, I, I think it is. I think the setting is really crucial. Like it sort of isn't like it's an echo of who Dern is in this movie, you know, like trying to be this big shot and, 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 and like almost choosing Atlantic city as his location and not really being aware of the decline all around him. And that's sort of who he ends up being. Nicholson seems like it's an interesting dynamic between the two of them. Cause Nicholson seems to be completely aware almost from the beginning that this isn't really plausible, mm-hmm. <laughs> but he seems to not be able to resist his brother's allure. Like the two of them are sort of complete each other. Yeah, and I think it's interesting that uh, he had already kind of indicated he was going to do this, but because he's on the trip, he's like pre-recording his show on tape and he's going to yeah. send it in. And <laughs> yep. it's like his ability to do his show kind of wanes when he's in his brother's sphere. Like he's in a different mode because you see him 
continually trying to record his show and failing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's got he's got recorder's block, not writer's block, but recorder's block, and and uh, and I think it's because he sort of finds himself falling into this subordinate role when he's by himself when he's just doing his own radio thing. He is kind of that master of the little universe that he's created for himself. But under the shadow of his taller, more gregarious, and, and more domineering big brother, who has got these great schemes and seems to have access to you know, money and capital funds and, and connections, uh, you know, David, the, the Jack Nicholson character, has been kind of tunneling along in his own little world. Um, you know, he's got this gig on the radio, but he, and, and, and in a sense, he is a sort of a, the, the head of his own domain. However, uh, it's, it's a pretty small, isolated, cut off little domain and it doesn't really go anywhere. Uh, here's David now, or was it Jason? Is that the brother's name? Yeah. Yeah. So he's got, you know, not, not one woman, but two women and, and he's promising. Yeah. He's, he's doing his sales pitch on his brother to see how that's going to play. Uh, because what he's offering is a slice of paradise, right? Not only, you know, this, this awesome experience living off the coast of Hawaii, but he's, you know, the, the women will share them too. <laughs> you know, <laughs> reminds me of the Grateful Dead song, you know, we can share the women, we can share the wine. right? <laughs> and so it's kind of like this, you know, wow, uh, imagine anything better than that, you know? Uh, but it, but it is also just tying into that, that hype, um, which is another aspect of the American dream, you know, uh, instant success, living the high life because you're just sort of smarter than the average schmo. And, uh, you know, you're the guy that other people look up to and, and want to emulate in some way. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's just quite a fascinating character study to just kind of get into these performances, into these roles, into these relationships, uh, you know, a, a lot to enjoy here. And yet, it's also a film that I think it got criticism. It, it certainly did not bowl the critics over, and it did not necessarily do real well with mainstream audiences or, or kind of, you know, even the kind of commercial success that uh, Rafelson and, and the BBS series got with films, like I've already mentioned, Easy Rider, a huge commercial sensation, a game changer for the whole Hollywood movie industry. The Last Picture Show, revered, celebrated, uh, you know, very rightly canonized almost as one of the greatest films of its era. And I think Five Easy Pieces, we've already talked about that as well. Uh, but then there were the other smaller films in that set, Dead Drive, he said, and uh, A Safe Place, which were smaller, more experimental. This one sort of feels a little bit more in that zone, even though, again, the casting is, is pretty appealing and, and the names definitely... Uh, right now is certainly in hindsight stand out as like, wow, that's a pretty impressive cast uh, given what they went on to accomplish. So why do you think this film did not connect quite as uh, successfully as some of those others that I've mentioned? Well, I mean, I think especially, I mean, the five easy pieces is probably the most salient comparison because Ravelson made both of them. And I, and I think that film sort of taps into a lot of sort of the, the endorsement of rebellion of the period. I, I, I don't know that it plays that way a lot to like modern audiences, but I think Nicholson's character's constant, you know, saying no to everything really appealed to audiences at the time. This film doesn't have anything like that. Really. This is like really a, like a downbeat character study with a very minimal plot. Mm -hmm. And if you're not sort of in, in tune with that kind of film, it feels on the one hand, I think I was, I was noticing that I read one of the links that you were showing where they were answering like questions that had come from the audience, people who'd seen it. And I don't think they know why things are happening in the film, you know? <laughs> yeah. But, like they're expecting a very, a very straightforward plot through it. So that if, for example, there's a scene where they have, well, the stepdaughter, part of the goal for her, according to Ellen Burstyn, is for her to be a beauty pageant contestant and win Miss America someday. So they stage this fake Miss America pageant one night, like in a in an abandoned like conference hall kind of thing. 
and it's it's not anything to do with the plot of the film. It's sort of just like another sort of character moment. And there's a lot of things in the movie that are like that. And it's, and that scene, which happens to be up on my monitor at the moment, as I'm kind of uh, just kind of playing it in background almost plays like a dream sequence. Like there's no explanation as to how were they able to actually pull this off. I mean, they've got cameras, they've got lighting. I mean, the staging is very basic, very primitive, you know, it's not like they're running the full bore pageant, but it's fairly elaborate. If you were to think, how would these characters actually pull off off a little prank like that? And they've got, they've got access to this massive, uh, you know, conference center. This isn't just like a, you know, kind of a small theater with a stage. This is like a huge arena. It probably could seat several thousand people, maybe even 10,000 or more. You know, it's, it's, it's a huge facility and, uh, and they're going all out with, with the lighting and the, you know, the, you know, there's Jack Nicholson singing his song and Bruce Stern standing up on these crates and the women kind of, there's Ellen Burstyn playing the organ and, and, uh, you know, the younger stepdaughter, uh, in her, in her gowns with her roses and all that. So it's, it's quite, quite elaborately staged and there's no, there's no way of establishing that this thing was, was an actual event. I mean, it, you see it on screen but it's it's kind of like playing fast and loose with uh, the the plausibility i suppose you could say but it's it is it's just it's just artistic and adventurous and kind of no holds barred filmmaking this is not a movie that is you know going to you know blow you away with its explicitness or its outrageousness but it it takes its ideas and just kind of runs with them without having to feel the need to explain itself or to hook you in with a conventional plot that uh, gives you the kind of payoffs that you might expect. Yeah, there's, there's not really a, a, a happy redemption. I'm, there, there is a redemption of sorts, but it's very melancholic. You know, it's, it's not a, a happy ending. And uh, the, the, the way that the characters, you know, they're, they're, kind of outcome at the end of the movie is resolved, you know, certainly would leave a lot of, you know, conventional viewers wanting something more, something different, something a little bit more satisfactory along the, the usual lines of how these things go, you know, some kind of a a path forward for that. They're going to emerge having learned something from these bitterly uh, earned experiences that they've, they've, they've gotten themselves through. (laughs) Yeah, I, I think there's a real um, moment that's sort of almost over a year or so after this film was made where audiences were looking for something new, right? Mm-hmm. And, and a lot of young directors sort of slightly tapped into that, but we're, we're also somewhat interested in doing things that weren't really what the audience was looking for. But the studio was so unsure about how to tap into it that they gave people money and resources to make a film like this mm-hmm. come out from paramount and a lot of them like this one don't do that well because i don't know that it's really what the audience was were wanting so much as what the filmmakers wanted to do right right you get the sense that rafelson had his sort of own kind of offbeat vision yeah that he was ex- interested in exploring he had a very talented cast that could do a lot of things that could inject a lot of energy and liveliness into their characters. But he really was kind of a questing, seeking, experimental type of um, approach. You know, he, in fact, you know, something you and I kind of very briefly chatted about was kind of the role reversal in, yeah. in the types of, of what the Bruce Dern character typically might have been and the Jack Nicholson character typically might have been. Um, according to Ellen Burstyn, a little anecdote that's been published and repeated several times and, you know, maybe not be the fine, final foundational truth of the story, but Ellen Burstyn basically accounted, uh, recounted the, you know, a moment where Bob Rafelson, hey, let's just switch you guys roles. You know, let's let's have Jack play the Bruce Stern character and Bruce play the Jack character. In other words, Jack Nicholson, you know, would have more traditionally played the the wild, exuberant con artist, you know, the kind of the showboat here with Bruce Dern being a little bit more the introverted, uptight, intellectual, 
they they got to t- kind of take on you know playing against type there you ha- you had that observation as well so tell me just a little bit of your thoughts about uh, how successful you think that reversal went and and what are some of the thoughts behind it yeah i think it's a huge move for nicholson to play this mm-hmm. part because he is really just starting out like he has only done a handful of films as an as a notable actor at this point right and um he's choosing to like in going along with that idea he's playing something that doesn't play to what was seen as his strengths at the time mm-hmm. it really gives him really reveals like just how much range he has because i mean i think it's not only he does a wonderful job as this character but you could tell this is less him as a person you know yeah like, yeah a lot, of, a lot of the parts he'd been playing are playing into his own personality in a way and this is quite a departure yeah, and he was definitely an established personality. He had been kind of bopping around Hollywood for almost like 10 years or so and had a lot of connections, a lot of relationships with a known personality. But you're but you're right. You know, this is a role where he sort of had to reel it in a bit and play more the straight guy while Bruce Dern is out there cutting loose and, and kind of ramping it up. I mean, Nicholson's character definitely has... <laughs> that fire within he he is a you know he is a person of of some deep feelings and and you know he he's striving intellectually and he is trying to sort of make some kind of sense out of this there are moments where he has to sort of step up and confront his older brother and try to talk him down and ground him back in reality uh, and all of that but uh, in some ways it is, you know, you you can say Bruce Dern was kind of like the lead of this film uh, because his character is the one who sort of drives the action and, and kind of pushes everybody into, you know, these successive levels of crisis because he doesn't, you know, respond to the obvious cues that, you know what, this notion of converting this little piece of rock sticking up out of the ocean into a world-class resort and casino and entertainment center it ain't going nowhere you know you don't have the funding your your kingpin crime boss doesn't think you are anything other than an expendable flunky and uh, he's going to cut you loose or let you sit and stir for you know months on end if if that's if that's how his whims lead him, you know? And so, you know, to me, that's an interesting aspect as well. These, these characters who really have gone whole hog into thinking they're, they're Mr. Big stuff, you know? And you, you recognize that there's, there's not a whole lot of substance behind the facade. And yet you also recognize that there's a lot of people who have managed to make some headway into the, you know, higher ranks of uh their chosen field whatever that may be by just being these kind of relentless con artists uh who are able to fool enough of the people enough of the time to sort of get that leg up you know Uh, i personally just can't stand characters like that and yet i see them (laughs) all around me (laughs) and it's just the way of the world and so i guess you know i feel like rafelson is kind of identifying those characters so yeah, so Rafelson's identifying those characters, and and it seems to me like he is um, kind of exploring maybe his own experience of these types of characters as he's uh, he's in the movie industry. So there's all kinds of people like that around him, <laughs> surrounding him, and uh, you know maybe he's making his own commentary uh, in a in an industry that is full of hype and bluster and. Uh, smooth talkers trying to you know get people to go along with their uh, ambitious and grandiose schemes yeah it's also a very pessimistic period in like uh, american society and i think it's sort of a as as you say like a, a real comment on that sort of the death of american dreams you know mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which is a kind of a downer message right i mean his yeah. a lot of audiences may not want to look in the mirror that he's holding in front of them uh, because he's kind of exposing their BS as well. Yeah. The way Atlantic city is photographed in this, I think is quite (laughs) striking. Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. it's like this, this constantly wintry autumnal place. And that's half abandoned in almost every shot. You know, there, there are people, but there are not a lot of people. And 
it, it really feels like a shell of a place in this movie. Yeah, because it's all in the winter, the off season, you know, when really nothing but the diehards and the bargain hunters are there. You know, you, you see a couple establishing scenes of kind of these, you know, crowds of elderly women primarily, but also some old men kind of being walked around. This is probably when you can get tickets for quarters on the dollar from what they might cost in the summertime, right? And you can say, we went to Atlantic City, but <laughs> there's really not a whole lot of action going on there. Uh, you talked about the shoot, the shots and the, the cinematography. Let's talk a little bit about Laszlo Kovacs. Uh, of course, again, another pretty big name who was still in the process of establishing himself at this time. But what do you think about just kind of the, uh, you know, the, the cinematography and and uh, just, you know, that that visual component of this film. I thought it was pretty impressive myself. Yeah. Yeah. He's kind of, he's really known as someone who uh, came up through really cheap movies and sort of like acquired a, a run and gun kind of aesthetic. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it really shows in this. It's a, it, it feels a bit like, um, like a guerrilla film, but it's so beautifully composed. Like somebody, somebody who uh, is, is really good at, uh, at, 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 at like working, quickly but making like wonderfully shot wonderfully composed shots off the top of his head it, it's yeah it, it's a beautiful it's a beautifully sort of it's sort of beautifully ugly in a, in a wonderful way well, yeah. well exactly and and you know again back on my monitor here we've got the scenes filmed on the beach where they're setting up these huge bonfires and ellen burson in this kind of you know, midlife crisis of her own decides she's going to burn her wardrobe, which is kind of like, it, it feels like she was kind of a beauty pageant queen herself, or at least somebody who aspired to that. Cause the, the clothes that she's throwing into this bonfire are all these kind of satiny gowns and you know, kind of evening wear or dress up, you know, to kind of that, that glamorous, uh, you know, dream life that uh, the, the curvaceous, beautiful woman that apparently would aspire to. Uh, you know, she she is a supporting character, but but she's still a pretty big part of the overall force of this film. She's a woman who's obviously been kind of flying by the seat of her pants for a while, and she's running out of options. She's very conscious of the fact that she's aging and maybe doesn't have the same instant sex appeal that she once did. She's trying to transfer the lessons that she's learned as a beautiful, desirable woman to this uh, this stepdaughter of hers with all the kind of, you know, <laughs> kind of weird uh, interwoven tensions and strains of, of the relationship. You can sort of, sort of imagine what might have gotten both of them to this particular point in their lives. Uh, but again, you know, that, that guerrilla filmmaking you talk about, it's like setting bonfires on it the beach in Atlantic city. I mean, yeah. how did they get away with that? You know, it doesn't seem like the kind of thing that you would just be able to get away with, uh, these days or probably not even that much longer after the film was made when, uh, they decided to get serious about reviving the prospects of this, uh, once, uh, unrivaled tourist capital of the East coast USA. I think her transition, like to that, like that crisis is handled really skillfully. Like, yeah, you only see a couple of scenes, like one, the dinner with the Japanese businessman. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Where you notice that Dern is suddenly sort of sitting with the stepdaughter and has his arm around her. And I think that's really what triggers what triggers the crisis, that he's moving, right. you know? Yeah, yeah. He's not just the tag-along kid anymore. He's kind yeah. of lasciviously groping her and she's kind of digging it <laughs> you know she's got to feel like "Ooh, i'm coming to kind of get him into my own uh and then yeah yeah and you see you know, ellen burson's character just going through the you know these stages of, of meltdown you know throwing not only throwing burning her clothes throwing away her her cosmetics cutting her hair really kind of uh, ushering herself into this new phase of life which is you know kind of hysterical and kind of you know perhaps you know to some viewers it might even seem a little bit of uh, misogynistic or whatever i you know i'm not sure we need to get all up into that but you know it's an interesting trajectory that she's on uh and obviously a, a pretty sad and painful one that i think some women maybe many women could could relate to if they want to let themselves go and identify with uh with the course of, of events that that uh, she's gone through here, 
Um, so yeah. So what are some other aspects of the film that kind of, you know, caught your attention that, that maybe you want to explore a little bit? Yeah, it's a tough one. It's a very, uh, it's such an unstructured film. It's hard to say, hard to mm-hmm. say much very specific about it, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's, I, I would say it, it kind of ventures into what you might call hangout movie territory mm-hmm. where you're just kind of there with the characters kind of absorbing, uh, their experience, maybe relating to, you know, aspects of our own lives that we've kind of been through that might, you know, sort of echo some of the moments that they've been through. Yeah. To me, I think I, I did probably find myself relating most directly to Nicholson's character, David. Again, I've already mentioned his uh, penchant uh, for, you know, voicing his thoughts for trying to, you know, think a little bit deeply, trying to make sense of some of the, you know, uh, the the randomness, the, the chaos, and the and just kind of his perception of life, and recognizing that there is a certain uh, coldness and indifference, the, a cruelty to the world that doesn't really, uh, you know, seem to always want to support our um, our efforts to make sense of <laughs> what's going on. You know, uh, his his sense of frustration as he's trying to, you know. Uh, be loyal to his brother to, to sort of hear him out to, to think seriously about what this proposition is all about but then also you know to sort of put the brakes on and say okay this is getting ridiculous this isn't going to go anywhere we've had the big sit down dinner the pitch with the Japanese businessmen they found their polite exit you know we've we've enjoyed the lobster but and also just the way that the relationships between this little, you know, foursome has broken down. Uh, when Ellen Burson's character gets up from that table, makes a big scene, you know, it's pretty clearly uh, established that this 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 scheme is not going to advance. In fact, the, the Japanese businessmen look at this this little meltdown and say, "Okay, this is our chance to." politely see ourselves to the door we've had a little adventure with these crazy americans maybe some cool stories they can tell when they get back home but uh you know uh, we'll be moving on now thank you and and jason you know the the bruce stern character really doesn't seem to have any place to go uh, once this whole thing has fallen to pieces yeah i also think david still thinks that like Lewis is going to pull them could like the, the promise that Lewis is behind this is going to pull them out. And then the revelation that, you know, Scatman Crothers doesn't have any intention of backing this is like, right. Right. Yeah. I mean, Scatman Crothers has his own, yeah. Lewis has his, his, his basic approach to Jason is very manipulative, very much like, you know, he, he will get me certain things. And, and, and that's the thing, David, uh, or Jason, I'm sorry, feels like he's done. He's he's made big accomplishments. You know, he's he's opened doors for Lewis. Lewis should have some gratitude, uh, but you know, we we see there's no honor among thieves and all of that. But yeah, it's basically, it's 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 vapor. It's not going anywhere, and uh, Jason has a hard time really recognizing that. Yeah, I mean, he, he in fact, even to the point where he's got felony charges he's got a court date in a couple of days and he's just going to somehow skip town head out to hawaii lewis will clean up the mess for him because you know we're tight like that (laughs) and there's david saying you know what we've got to get our head out of the clouds and get back to reality do you mind spoiling the actual conclusion let's let's talk about it yeah i mean Yeah. So, well, okay. Spoiler alert. If you haven't seen it and you want to be surprised by the ending, this is the time to hit the pause button and come back later. But Richard, let's tell, talk to us a little bit about the ending of the film and kind of, again, where do you think it leaves audiences and, and how did it impact the overall reception of the movie? It's a downer of an ending for sure. Right? For sure. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah. So there's a big confrontation where, where Nicholson is telling Dern, you know, David's telling Jason, like, this is not going anywhere. Like, like mm-hmm. Lewis has told me, you know, he's not backing you. So you have no backing on this. You're not getting out of the court date, you know? So there's yeah. no going to Hawaii. There's no deal. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You won't get on that plane. They will not, yeah. you'll be intercepted. Right. Yeah. And in the meantime, Ellen Burstyn is there very upset. 
that Dern is going to leave her behind because Dern is throwing out pretty much every option on the table. Like we can take them both with us. We can leave them both here. We can take the stepdaughter and leave Ellen Burstyn behind. Right. Yeah. And, and in her insecurity, I think she's sort of seeing everything revolving around her. You're going to dump me. You're going to keep the young girl. I'm just, I'm expendable baggage. And so she's kind of seeing the, the worst case scenario unfold in front of her eyes. It's not necessarily what's in the cards, but that's how she's seeing it. And yeah, that gun, which has been produced earlier in the film, <laughs> sort of comes yeah. back to fulfill its destiny. You know? <laughs> and it's sort of handed off from character to character to character. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. As Nicholson mentions, as she threatens to shoot everybody at some point. Yeah, right. Yeah, she except her stepdaughter. <laughs> Um, yeah, but it, it, I think it's very well done because I mean, Dern is so concerned with keeping Nicholson in that yeah. he, he's not paying attention to her really. Right. He's I mean, very it's like, Yeah. It's the desperation of the con. He's got to keep at least one sucker in the game. Like one, one, one fall guy who's going to stay with him through, through the worst of it. That that's what keeps you know, his hopes alive. But of course he loses his focus and pays the price. And he's so dismissive of her that she suddenly shoots him. Right? Yeah. And it's pretty blunt, pretty brutal. Yeah. So that is one where I, Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It, it, whoa. I, first time I saw it, it's like that definitely blew me away. I was not expecting that. Yeah. And and it sort of, it, it sort of closes the movie and sends Nicholson back home. Yeah. Where he could have that moment of watching Grandpa's old home movies yeah. <laughs> and sort of reencapsulate the whole story into a radio monologue. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's, it's kind of giving him material for his yeah. his own shtick, <laughs> which and feels a bit like you know, outside of the influence of Jason, he's going to like tame this back into his way of dealing with the world. Mm-hmm. You know, like he's going to turn this story back into one of his monologues and. And go back to go back to where he was, which is it's a very it's it's a thing that Rafelson kind of does. I mean, it's what do you think he does with five easy pieces? Mm-hmm. Too, yeah, not really resolve the, the introduce you to a character and not really resolve his main character arc. You know, right. like give you this is the way people interact with the world, and this is what happens. <laughs> Yeah, he's kind of led you through this experience. You have this sort of ultimate encounter with what maybe you thought were your hopes and dreams or what you thought was kind of, you know, a big opportunity. And then it's like it sort of evaporates and you're kind of back on your own again with a little bit of life lesson applied and uh, you're to pick it up and, and carry on wherever wherever the next chapter takes you. So yeah, it is. It is one of these films that kind of, with that ambivalent ending, with kind of a, the you know certainly a downer. There's there's again there's no real uplift here. You know, watching those home movies of the of the two brothers back when they were just innocent little boys building castles in the sand. You know, nice little metaphor for the scheme that uh, Jason's been trying to pitch. Uh, kind of a castle in the sky, you might say. Um, you know, there there is that grounding of of kind of common experience, but there's also, you know, just the the bittersweet aspect of the fact that you know there's you know life is bound to disappoint you in a variety of ways, um, and there is no quick ticket, easy out. You know, even and even if you do somehow land on one of these cash cow golden opportunities that turns into big money, let's say, there's still going to be sort of a a hollowness or a lack or something that's missing that doesn't quite seal the deal or, or fill in the whole picture. And I think that is where Rafelson is offering a bit of a social critique of the, you know, the prevailing ethos of American society or the, you know, get rich quick capitalism, et cetera. Uh, the idea that if you could just deliver that pitch that is persuasive enough with enough confidence to, to sort of make it seem plausible and real uh, and in effect that, uh, you know, you'll, you'll get people to go along with you and then you'll kind of be on the pathway to fame, fortune, success, however you want to define it. Uh, but, you know, it, 
it, it feels like at the time, uh, his, his approach, his delivery was not as well appreciated. And, and maybe there is a, an effect of nostalgia or canonization because these, these are, you know, some pretty impressive actors in, in, you know, kind of approaching their prime and, and ready to take on even bigger and better and maybe more classically memorable roles. But I really just enjoyed this, uh, this excursion with, with the, uh, you know, Nicholson, Dern, and Burston in particular. Scatman Carruthers, apparently, he said this was a favorite role of his. Uh, somewhere there's a reference in there. Uh, it's a small role, but I think, you know, he is definitely a man in charge. Uh, and unlike maybe his role in The Shining, he's not just played off as being eccentric or odd, whatever. Uh, he's he's kind of a, a, a man uh, who's in charge of his own little domain and, and gets to tell it like it is and <laughs> doesn't have to apologize or walk away or, or fade into obscurity. He's uh, he's laying it down pretty straight. Yeah, I also, I, I really like films that um, you know examine characters and examine them in very interesting ways and don't mm-hmm. really resolve anything because... Yeah, yeah. Stories that people don't generally resolve their <laughs> no no life just content it kind of continues to go on yeah. and then one day you find yourself you know chronically or terminally ill and then it's over you know but but on the meantime you're always negotiating navigating and and trying to figure out and improvise you know just to get from one situation to the next and so the, this film in that sense does have a, a bit of that ring of truth even though it doesn't make us for uh, the same kind of satisfying diversionary entertainment that we are often accustomed to when we go to the movies. <laughs> so this is, this feels a little bit more like a a workshop of sort. Uh, uh, artistic director, uh, artistic actors, kind of working through their roles and and trying some things out, and and leaving it at that, not trying to, uh, you know, polish or gussy it up to win audience approval or major award recognition or anything like that. It's, it's people doing what they do because they love doing it. And, and to me that, that is a very satisfying, uh, film watching experience. And, and that's why I've enjoyed a couple revisits, uh, of this film over the last week or so. And, and this conversation. I just gotta say, it's interesting that this one kind of closes the door on BBS. Yeah, yeah. they really do. Just the uh, the documentary uh, Hearts and Minds is like the last thing they do before kind of folding. Okay, yeah, which and, has its own separate release as a Criterion. Spine yeah, record. and I can see why it's not really totally like these films. No, it's, it's right. Yeah, but but you know, but but I do I do admire and. Um, I really want to want to pay my respects to this kind of iconoclastic sensibility that these yeah. guys brought to their filmmaking because it really was kind of this unique opportunity to get big studio backing and distribution uh, to make films that really were not nearly as compromised or as driven by, you know, bottom line considerations as they were, even just a few years later, and obviously any business where you see the returns are not coming in the way that you thought, and, and that that real anomaly where you had films like Easy Rider that were made for super low budgets, making explosive you know profits, uh, that is going to definitely turn studio heads' attention to say, oh, that's what the kids like these days. Well, let's just go ahead and shovel money to these directors. But you know, audiences are fickle and tastes are are you know malleable and susceptible to fads and and once you give them a little bit of what they were looking for um sometimes more becomes too much (laughs) and so you know and it you know even though we're still a few years away from the the mega blockbuster types but you know there were other movies of this time that were making a lot more money and were maybe more conventionally satisfying audience appetites. And so the studios, you know, pretty understandably from a financial perspective, decided to put their efforts into, you know, other types of films. 
And that's where a guy like Bob Rafelson kind of gets pushed a little bit to the sidelines. He was he was an important and influential and innovative director in his time. He went on to have a career, uh, but he's not necessarily regarded as one of the great American auteurs of this era. However, I do want to give you a chance to kind of you know talk about your own little connection to Bob Rafelson on his official website. Tell us a little bit about the story of your review and how he kind of uh, elevated your views on this film to his own select audience. Yeah. I was, I was perusing the links that you sent me about this film. And one of them is to Bob Rafelson's official website, uh, which uh, Rafelson passed away about a year ago, but yeah, mm-hmm. website. Him and, and Ellen Burstyn. Exactly. So a lot of the links that I found were really re- like retrospectives and memoriams yeah. of Rafelson's career, but he does have an official website that's still up there. Yep. So one of the things he has on his website is a section with reviews of his films. And some of the films, like I'd say the more prominent ones, he's offering like critic reviews like Roger Ebert. But for a lot of the films, he's got he's found user reviews on places like Rotten Tomatoes. And I'm looking at the one for his 87 film, Black Widow, which I like quite a bit. Mm-hmm. And I'm looking at it, it says Richard D on Rotten Tomatoes. And I'm reading it and thinking, that that sounds like me. <laughs> it reads like something I would write. And I looked at uh, it up and it's like he's he's picked my review. <laughs> yeah. That is so cool. I was so yeah. delighted when I saw that. It's like, wow, you yeah. and Bob, you're like your kindred spirits there. <laughs> and uh, I was especially somewhat tickled because that's actually a pretty well received film of his at the time. Yeah. So, there must have been critic reviews, but he, he liked mine. Well, yeah. Thank you, Bob. Now, Thank you, I've never thought about posting to Rotten Tomatoes. How do you go about doing that? I, I thought Rotten I Tomatoes used to do that like quite a bit. Reviews. Okay, yeah, go ahead. I used to do that quite a bit. You could just go in when you rate a film and put in your review. I don't do it anymore. So okay. The worst review of mine is from like 2016. So this is like pre-letterboxed or whatever, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. Um, and I don't do it anymore partly because I don't even use it. Rotten Tomatoes anymore. I don't think the site yeah. really works the way it used to. But um, yeah. it was... I, I actually really like Rafelson's entire career, so it's not a surprise that he'd find one of the films that I really liked and pick yeah. the group. And, and obviously, and, and at that point, you know, and maybe, tell me just a little bit about Rafelson's later career, because I really am not familiar with, yeah. with, with those films, and I'd like to give him his respects. Like I say, he just passed away last year, so there's a lot of... Um, Tribute, tributes and retrospective stuff in the show notes if you want to follow those up um but yeah tell me i mean he seemed like a pretty cool guy like there yeah. are a few clips of him talking on the supplements on this criterion blu-ray which unfortunately is not available to watch on the criterion channel so it seems like the rights are a little bit more restrictive there but yeah give me some impressions of rafelson and what he went on to do once he was a little bit less in the limelight as a celebrated you know Enfant Terrible uh, director in Hollywood there. He had an interesting trajectory because he, uh, part of the reason that this kind of ends the BBS set is after this film, he voluntarily left the BBS company Mm. to kind of strike out on his own. And he made a film called Stay Hungry, which is pretty good. It has like Jeff Bridges and the first really prominent big role for Arnold Schwarzenegger. Like this one before Pumping Iron then? Or... No, but it's the first like dramatic. Oh, okay, Act, uh, acting role, not yeah, a documentary. Yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah, he has a small like cameo in in uh, Robert Altman's Long Goodbye, but this is like a really substantive role. Okay, and that film only did so so, and uh, he was given a studio job to to direct the uh, Robert Redford film Brubaker, and was fired oh. after a few days. Oh, okay. Uh, and why was that? I mean, I saw Brubaker back in the day. Huh? It's disputed. Oh, okay. okay, sure. They said it was because he was behaving badly on the set. He said it's because he wouldn't buckle down to studio control. Okay, sure. So hard to say, but, but Stuart Rosenberg replaced him. But at that point on, he kind of fell into a pattern of making sort of interestingly neo-noir crime films. He okay. did. He did the remake of The Postman Always Rings twice with Nicholson and yep. Jessica Lange. And then intermittently throughout his career, he mostly did these sort of like crime films, often with Nicholson again. 
Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I could imagine he and Nicholson just had a, a rapport, a vibe. Yeah. And I, I could imagine Nicholson enjoyed working with him because they just got each other, you know, yeah. and even though they were smaller movies and they were not necessarily the star making vehicles that Nicholson, you know, became Jack, yeah. <laughs> you know, right. So the one I, I reviewed, Black Widow, is not uh, one with Nicholson, but it is um, it, it's a film about a woman who is um, marrying rich men and killing them. Oh, okay. Deborah Winger plays an FBI agent who realizes what's happening and suspects her and befriends her to try to get close to her. Okay. My other people, Dennis Hopper, has a has a fairly large role in it. But he, oh, he became, okay. yeah. he became pretty good at these kind of smallish thrillers. That I, I, I yeah. think all of them are really quite good. Even his last sort of thriller like that from the 90s, Blood and Wine, that has Jack Nicholson and Michael Caine in it. It's really quite good. Well, I mean, these actors, these casts that you're mentioning, just sort of offhand, it's like he seemed to know how to attract talent. He was not just making, you know, two-bit throwaway films, even though they may not be, you know, marquee headers from their times. Yeah, he, like I say, he just seems to have sort of an interesting sort of observational perspective on American society and ways of putting that on film that, uh, yeah, yeah, it, it's, he's he's a singular voice. And even though, again, he may not go down in the pantheon of great directors, it seems like he made some pretty significant contributions. And if you find yourself... Um, yeah, uh, there's an affinity for his style. It seems like he's got a lot to offer there. Yeah, yeah. I, I actually, I've, I've only seen one film of his I don't like, which is pretty interesting. <laughs> uh, what was that? By just I, he, he reunited with one of the writers of Five Easy Pieces and Jack Nicholson to make a film called Man Trouble with with Nicholson and Ellen Barkin. That's not very good. Huh. Okay. Well, again, I, uh, interesting. Interesting casting there, but yeah, everybody's entitled to a, a misfire once in a while, right? All right, well, good. I think we can probably start wrapping this up then. So I appreciate you jumping on with this one for me, Richard. Uh, good conversation, uh, a film that I definitely give strong recommendations to, even though you might want to sit down and, and settle into a second viewing because, you, you know, I, I will say my first viewing is like, okay, interesting. I mean, there's there's definitely some interesting bits to chew on there and great performances, you know, fascinating to see these actors kind of getting outside of their typical casting roles. Uh, but boy, yeah, that second go around, definitely, like you said, you know, right at the beginning, rewatching it again, you like it even more because there's just, there's something tangible and, and resonant that, uh, that comes through these characters going through their emotions and just getting us to think about our own lives, our own experience in this society. So yeah, it's, uh, kind of a, a nice kind of culmination of, of, of the BBS set and uh, one that I, I hope people take the time to, to dig out somewhere and, and uh, check out. Yeah. It's the kind of film that if you, if you really sink into its wavelength, it's, it's, it's really rewarding, I think. Exactly. All right. Well, our next episode is going to be uh, a pretty fraught title, The Last Tango in Paris. This is a Criterion Collection laser disc from way back when, uh, but it is on my spreadsheet, and it's a film that has generated a lot of interest. I've got a, a number of people who have told me they want to talk about this movie with me, so <laughs> I am going to jump into the the burbling uh, stew of, of opinions and controversies surrounding this film. I think that includes uh, me. So <laughs> Yes, that's right. Yeah. So I, I may end up doing a series of, kind of like yeah. I did with the Bunuel, uh, Discreet Charm, just short one-on-one -on -one interviews that I splice together. So yeah, Richard, you and I will be talking soon as well as a few other voices. In fact, and some people who've not been on this podcast either ever or very scarcely, but uh, it should be a fascinating uh, exchanges as we get into Bernardo Bertolucci, <laughs> Bernardo Bertolucci's The Last Tango in Paris. I guess it's just Last Tango in Paris. There's no the there, right? <laughs> uh, Last Tango in Paris, starring Marlon Brando and... Uh, Maria Schneider. So should be a pretty epic conversation. So I encourage you to tune in, listen to that whenever it's coming around. 
we'll try to get out there soon and uh, we'll see where we go from there. All right. So that's the end of this episode. Thanks for listening in, everybody. Give me your feedback and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye. million girls who are more than pretty can come true in Atlantic City for she may turn out to be the queen of femininity there she is Miss America there she is your ideal with so many she took the town by storm with her. Oh, American face and form. And there she is. Walking on air she is. Fairest of the fair she is. Miss America.